And we're going to be verses 16 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3. Um, but as we continue going through this section of the scripture, we're trying to use the umbrella heading for Advent of this. That we're calling it, Far as the Curse is Found. Far as the curse is found. And you probably recognize that from the song Joy to the World. That's how we know it, is singing that song. Uh, But that song, the lyrics of it were actually a a poem of sorts written by Isaac Watts, the famous hymn writer. Uh, He wrote, he did this wonderful thing. You can find it online for free. He compiled these writings of his that he called the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament. And what he did was in English and in rhyming, rhythmic way, he tried to summarize all the psalms uh, one by one. He took several poems to do it for some of the psalms. Uh, But the song we know as Joy to the World was part of his poem he wrote to summarize Psalm 98. Uh, You can go and find the rest of it sometime if you want. Uh, But ironically, Isaac Watts, in writing that uh, poem and then the song that we now sing, he wasn't writing about the birth of Jesus. Uh, He was writing about the eventual return of Jesus, how someday he would return to reign, to rule over the earth. But one of the, the lyrics in the song that we're taking up as our theme for this Advent, he wrote this, and we sing this often, He said, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I don't know about you, but those are rich lyrics to me. (laughs) There's much packed into those, and I think they're fitting lyrics uh, for this month, for our church family, because we're going through this text of Scripture, Genesis 3, which many people call the curse, the pronouncement of the curse upon the world that we live in, upon the serpent. But this is also the month uh, and the timing of the calendar where we celebrate the coming of Jesus, his first entrance into the world, and we anticipate his second coming, uh, where he came the first time and is coming the second time again, all to lift and to reverse the effects of the curse that began back in Genesis 3. Uh, that is why he came, is to, to make his blessing know as far as this curse is now found. And embedded in that lyric, and why we're taking it up as our, our heading for uh, this month, far as the curse is found, Embedded in that is this reality that we need to face of the far-reaching effects of the curse. That the curse was not some trivial, small, insignificant thing that God pronounced over his creation, but the curse has become, in Genesis 3 and to this very day and will be till Jesus returns, it has become pervasive. Like it has spread to all aspects of life, every dimension of it, right? And it doesn't dissipate, it doesn't diminish as we get older or wiser. The curse stays. The effects of the curse have stayed now for thousands of years. And there is no place on this planet we can move where the curse will not be found. There is no resolution we can make to lift it. There's no self-discipline we can practice to remove ourselves from it. Like we don't have the capacity, you don't have the capacity to lift yourself out from under the curse of God. But in God's providence, he has sent a savior who can lift it for us, who has lifted it for us. And so this morning, as we come to Genesis 3, uh, we're going to go back to the beginning, to this, this origin story. And we're going to hear there in the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning of time, we're going to hear our creator, uh, our creator tell our first parents, Adam and Eve, just how far this curse was going to be found. God himself is going to pronounce it, of how far spread this curse will be. 
But then we're going to end this morning by saying, uh, praise God, we're going to see just how far our Savior has been willing to go to lift the curse. So we're going to see both of these things. My hope, in, in all sincerity, is to depress you first. I'm serious. Like, I, I want us to feel the weight of this. Like, to face the reality of this, that we live in a cursed world. But then I want to give you the hope of the good news of Jesus and let you know the lengths that he has gone to to lift that curse for us, to lift it from this world and to set up a new creation. And so to, just so you can know where we are, because we're, we're jumping into the story, and if you haven't been with us, it, the book of Genesis, it's the genesis. It's the beginning of all things. We've, we've seen the last few months as a church family, God's creation of the world, how he spoke things into existence. And those first two chapters of the Bible are quite the contrast to what we're about to read, about the cursedness of the world. Those first two chapters, we see that God created a world that he called very good, right? We saw that uh, in verse 31 of chapter 1. We've seen a world where God blessed the animals, right? And God blessed the man and woman. Uh, There's blessing that God had spoken over them. Now we're going to see curse. We've seen that God created man and woman to live in harmony with each other. That humans were supposed to live in harmony. They were supposed to live with Eve as Adam's helper, with them bearing children and spreading out over the earth and even ruling over the earth together. That is how things were supposed to be. As we've seen the last few weeks in chapter 3, in slithers the serpent, right? The great deceiver who deceives Eve, who tempts both her and Adam to defy God's commands about the tree that they were not supposed to eat from, and they bite, like they rebel, right? They go against the command of God, and it may have felt insignificant to them. We don't know, but it was far from uh, insignificant. What ensues here is dire. It's significant. It's hard to to overstate the, the extent of what unfolds now. We saw that God graciously approached Adam and Eve. Jordan preached on that. Thank you, brother, for that, of of God's gracious approach of Adam and Eve, that he didn't just shame them, condemn them. From the start, he tries to draw them out. They point the finger at each other or at the, the serpent, right? The blame game begins. And then we saw last Sunday, um, Ben preached for us and, and showed us this first statement in verse 14 where God starts speaking again. And he first speaks to the serpent and he pronounced a curse over him. Cursed are you above all livestock, right? But he also promised that there was going to be an offspring of the woman, which is an interesting phrase, right? Not the offspring of the man, but the offspring of the woman. Think virgin birth of Jesus someday, Right? That there's going to be this offspring to come from her that's going to crush the serpent. That's going to defeat him. But now we're going to see God turn and he's going to speak first to the woman and then he's going to speak to the man. And I I want you to hear, I want us to hear just how far God says this curse is going to be found. How different life is going to be on the earth now because they have sinned. Because Adam and Eve had just heard God say to the serpent how there's going to be this offspring, right? So there would have been this hope well up within them, like, yes, like sweet. There's going to be an offspring uh, who will defeat the serpent. Maybe think, whew, that was close. But now God's going to turn to them and he's going to have hard things to say uh, that, that square up with our experience of reality, our experience of the world. 
So let's read this. I'm going to read Genesis 3, 16 through 19. Uh, and I want to try an experiment. I don't know if this will become a normal routine, but there's many church traditions where after the scripture is read for the sermon, uh, the, the preacher says, this is the word of the Lord. I often say that. Uh, but there's this pattern where when the, the preacher says that, then the church together says, thanks be to God. So I'm going to try that after I read this. I'm going to read it, and then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then I'd encourage you, if you believe it, to say, thanks be to God. Okay? That's four words, right? Thanks be to God. So you can remember that for a few moments while I read this. So Genesis 3, 16 through 19. Moses continues under the inspiration of the Spirit recording this. To the woman he said... I will surely multiply your, ch- your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to summarize this message uh, this way is that Christ came to lift and reverse the curse for his people in all of its facets. So you could just simplify it to just lift. Christ came to lift the curse for his people in all of its facets. Think, as far as the curse is found, Christ came to lift it and lift all of it. And so I want to answer two simple questions from this text, and then as we look forward in Scripture, two simple questions this morning. One is, how far is the curse found? How far is it found? God tells us right here how far it's found, how far it is spread. And the second question is, how far did Christ go to lift it? Uh, What has he done to lift this curse from us? And so I want us to zero in on this text first and see how far is the curse found. Uh, Because God is pronouncing this before it even unfolds, but we've probably lived through much of this even in our own lives, whether short or long. Before we uh, see a few specific headings here of how far the curse is found, I wanted to note one thing, is that God is the one declaring this, right? God is the one, even where he starts here in verse 16, he starts by saying, I will multiply your pain, right? Sometimes we could read this and just think, well, Adam and Eve made a big mistake, and now just the natural consequence of it is this and this and this, and that God is just kind of passively watching it. That he's just letting it happen. That is not how the Bible depicts God. Of just passively watching the world that he created. He is the one pronouncing these things. Right? He is the one who's in charge of the world and who's bringing these things to be. He's the one who is pronouncing this judgment and this curse over the creation. Right? Uh, God is never just passive. Right? So I want us to look first at what God says to the woman, because there's a few things in what he says to her, these hints or direct statements that we can see of how far this curse is about to spread. And I would say as an aside, I'm grateful that God speaks to the woman. 
here. I hope this doesn't need to be said, but there's some people uh, throughout time or even today who will sometimes think if a lady is married that God relates to her through her husband, right? Like that, he, that she is just subsumed under him because they're one. But God speaks directly to her as an image bearer, right? As one who is accountable to her creator, one who just disobeyed him, he speaks directly to her and he will speak different things to Adam, but he speaks directly to Eve. And I'll acknowledge that he does not use language of curse when he talks to her. Here in verse 16, that word is not in here. It's in what he says to the serpent. It's in what he says to the man. Here that word is not. But I don't think that means he's just saying nice things to the woman, right? We know that phrase, like, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Like, this, in some way, I think we should understand this as part of the curse, as part of a pronouncement of God. You could call it what you want, a judgment oracle or something like that, but this feels curse-ish, right? That that God is saying, this is going to be a result of what y'all just did. This is going to be part of life lived out in this world now that I am going to bring hardship upon you. And so there's a few things in what he says to the woman that we can see of how far the curse is found. The first and most obvious one is that the curse is found, it's experienced in childbearing, right? Uh, That's where he says first, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, right? Pain is repeated. Uh, That's the common thread, those first two lines. I will multiply your pain. In pain you shall bring forth children, This is not coincidence. God is speaking to the woman after all, right? And women are the ones of the the two sexes that have the unique capacity, the capability of bearing children, of conceiving children, bearing them, delivering them. And so he speaks this word to her, that there is going to be pain in childbearing. God had commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, right? He had told them that was part of how they were to rule over the world was to be fruitful and multiply. And he's not pulling that command back, right? If anything, he's telling them to continue in it. This is going to happen. I still want you to do this, but he's saying that there's going to be deep pain now involved. I don't think this necessarily means it would not have been painful uh, for, uh, for Eve to give birth prior to the curse, but he certainly says that he's going to multiply pain and childbearing. He most obviously is talking about the physical act of childbearing, right? The, the, having witnessed several births of our own children, I am grateful to be a man, uh, that, that I don't have to worry about that or fear that, but can be a help and support to my wife in the, the birthing of our children. Uh, but there is excruciating pain in the delivery of a child, right? Contractions, the delivery of the child are incredibly painful, can last hours and if not days at times for women. But on top of that, there's nine months prior to that, right? Of your body being inconvenienced and being strained and stretched and weighed down, right? So he's speaking of this physical pain of childbearing, but I I think he could be, this is poetic language too, right? He could be speaking of pain of childbearing in other facets and other ways as well, right? That many of us in this room have known of infertility, right? That you're going to see as you read through Genesis. It's a marker in the life of God's people is infertility that they struggle with, that they, they, uh, they beg of the Lord to provide children for them. The experience of miscarriage that many of us in the room have experienced. It's not just the, the physical pain, but the emotional pain of having a child that passes away in the womb or stillbirth where the child dies in delivery 
or in what's more common in older times of the mother dying in delivery, right? We, we don't have that happen often, but throughout human history, there has been pain in a variety of ways with the conception, the bearing, the delivery of children. And these are recorded here in the scriptures, but they are reality for many of us in this room. We've lived through these. You could point to experiences, uh, whether physical or emotional, where you have experienced the cursedness of childbearing. It is still a sweet endeavor. This is the most glorious thing I think you can experience as a human being to witness the birth of a child. But it's also tainted with pain and with a cursedness. There's a brokenness to childbearing in this world, right? Second thing, though, and what God says to the woman that, that we can see how far the curse is found is about our relationships with other human beings. He speaks to her in the second half of verse 16 about her relationship with Adam, of what that was going to be like, right? She was created, we saw in chapter 2, she was created to be the helper of Adam as an equal, but to be the helper of Adam. Uh, they were to, to work in cooperation together. Adam had been given a unique role of authority and headship that we see even unfold in the scriptures and described more in depth. But Satan had undermined that structure, right? He, instead of coming to Adam and speaking to him, he had come to the woman to speak to her and to tempt her. And now this relationship that God had created as a beautiful oneness, the two becoming one that we read about several weeks ago, this sweetness of, that they were supposed to have as husband and wife, now he's saying is going to be broken. There's going to be difficulty and complexity to it. There's going to be conflict within it, right? He says to her, your desire shall be, ESV has translated how, or changed how they translate this in recent years. Currently, they have it as you, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Your copy, if you have an older ESV, maybe says your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is a very controversial couple lines. I will acknowledge uh, this statement of, of God toward the woman. Uh, as he talks about desire and rule, desire of the woman and rule of the man, there's much disagreement about how we should think about those things. Is this desire of the woman for her husband, is it a good thing? And then Adam is kind of the jerk who comes in and just cruelly crushes her. Or is that desire that she has, is it speaking about a bad sort of desire uh, against her husband or, or for something that her husband possesses? Like, is it a romantic desire for, like, fellowship and intimacy? Or is it a, a cursed desire? Given the nature of what all is talked about here, I, and I think we should bend initially toward thinking it is not a sweet, pleasant desire that she has for her husband. But the thing that's, that clinches that for me, that makes me think the ESV is right to say your desire shall be contrary to your husband, is that if you just, you might not even have to turn the page. If you look in the very next chapter, Genesis 4 verse 7, God is going to speak to Cain when he's starting to get angry at his brother Abel. And he's going to use these same two words, desire and rule. And he's going to say to Cain, your desire, or sin's desire is for you or against you, however you want to say it. Sends desires for you, but you shall rule over it. I don't think he's saying positive things about the desire of sin, right? Like, hey, sin just wants to be close to you and love you and serve you and care for you. He's saying it wants to rule you. Like, it wants to usurp you. It wants to go over you and dictate what you do, but you need to rule over it. You need to resist. And so, 
given that that is clearly what is being said with those same two words in the very next chapter, I think we should understand the more confusing text of chapter three in light of the more clear one, chapter four, and see that God is saying the desire of the woman is going to be not for her husband in a sweet way, but as the helper, as the one who was to submit to Adam's rule and to, to recognize his authority as the head of the marriage, he's saying that your desire is going to be to undermine that or to go against that. And he's not just saying every woman is this horrible lady, but he's saying there's this temptation. There's going to be this temptation that you face to take the role of the husband, to become the lead, to, to function as the head within your marriage. And he's saying, may that not be. Right? Adam is going to then face this temptation. Men, as husbands, face this temptation to rule in a harsh way, to domineer, to control, to manipulate their wives, to just rule with an iron fist, so to speak. But clearly then, God is saying to the woman, her relationship with her husband, which is the only other human being at this point, uh, is going to be complicated and there's going to be conflict that ensues between them. There's going to be relational strife. There's going to be jockeying for control. There's going to be sin against each other, mistreatment toward each other, even to those who are the most near to us, right? And I think we can extrapolate this, given that these are the first two humans, and he's saying there's going to be tension and conflict between you. We can extrapolate it to all human relationship, right? Especially those that have authority and submission involved. There's going to be this temptation for those who are under authority to take the role of those in authority, and there's going to be temptation of those who are in authority to misuse it and to hurt people and to take advantage of people. That is part of the cursedness of this world that we live in. And this is described in the scriptures. You see it unfold in all sorts of ways as time rolls on. But we experience this, don't we? Like we experience this temptation when we are in a role where we're under authority. We experience that temptation to undermine the people who are in authority, right? We'll say like they may be the head, but I'm going to be the neck, or I'm going to like I'm going to I'm going to trick them, or I'm going to I'm going to be the one who's in control here. I'm going to be the one who who comes back against you. Or the flip side of that, we know people who misuse authority. We've experienced it often in our life. Who who mistreat, who take advantage of this, these relationships are broken. We feel it in all sorts of ways of manipulation amongst fellow human beings, deception. Abuse, harshness, jealousy, bitterness, right? Like human relationships are shot through with cursedness, right? Like we, and even when it's not as simmering, we have more tame expressions of this, right? Of just like coldness toward each other, right? Or silence or avoidance. Uh, we, there's a brokenness to our relationships. The curse has reached them. But the last thing under the, what he says to the woman I want to point out is that even our desires are cursed, right? It's not just out there where the problem is and the curse is, it's found far and wide out there, but inside me, everything's good. He says to the woman, your desire will be against your husband. That's from within her, right? That, that, that the curse extends not just out into the world, but even into the human heart. Uh, that, that we are born into this world, every single one of us, with a bent away from God and away from seeking after him, of following his law, of trusting in his promises. Even our very desires within us are corrupted, 
right? We cannot pretend that the problem is just out there. And God, when he talks to Adam here in a moment, he's going to talk about more cosmic problems, more worldwide problems that are out there. But that doesn't mean that the human heart is exempt from it, right? And every human heart is, is prone to sin, prone to wonder. It's struck by the fallenness of our world, affected by the curse that God lays down here. So our uh, childbearing, our relationships, our desires are all reached by the curse. But then God turns to Adam and he speaks to him and there's a few more ways that we can see that the curse has spread. A few more dimensions or facets of life we can see that the curse has spread to. And we know this from our experience. And there's some similarities in what he says to Adam here to what he has said to the serpent, what he has said to the woman. There's some poetic consistencies like because you have done this, then this is the result. He talks about pain a lot, right? Like he's mentioned pain twice. To the woman, he's gonna mention pain several times here, right? So there's some similarities poetically to what he has said to them, but there's some different angles in what he's addressing. So the first thing I think you can see in what he says to Adam about the, the extent of the curse is that our work is cursed, Right? The work of human beings is cursed. Uh, and so God, he speaks to him here, remembering this, if you've been with us, that he had placed Adam in the garden. We saw in chapter 2, he had placed him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That was a core part of what he was supposed to do, was to take care of this garden and the trees and the plants that were within it. Adam was supposed to work. Work was a good gift. But now he's saying to Adam in this poetic way, but a real true way, that your work is going to be a struggle. It is going to be a fight against the ground. It's no longer just going to yield fruit and a harvest that comes, but it's going to be a struggle and a fight in order for you to even eat. You're going to have to work hard. It's, you're going to do it by the sweat of your face, verse 19 says, right? He talks in verse 18 about thorns and thistles are going to be the, the dominant thing that spring forth from the ground. Instead of plants for food, there's going to be thorns and thistles that you have to fight against. There's going to be obstacles to you even being able to grow anything, right? So our work is cursed. There's a difficulty to it, right? And we experience this, right? Any of you who are of any age, whether you have a paid job or you just do things, right? Where you work in just unpaid normal ways with chores or things like that. We experience the cursedness of work. That it doesn't go exactly how we want it to. It's not, it doesn't play out how we expect, right? I mean, it does with planting and farming and things like that. That's what he's immediately talking about is you plant things and you work hard. It doesn't guarantee that it's gonna even rain or that things are going to grow properly, right? Or that thorns won't choke things out. Uh, our, our farming, our gardening doesn't work always, even with our advancements and our technology. It doesn't go. We, we cannot make it rain, for example. I don't think we ever will be able to. Uh, we can try to do things, but there's a cursedness to the ground itself, to growing things. But think broader than that. We now have all sorts of work that we do in the marketplace, all sorts of paid work that we do. Think of how you probably have experienced the cursedness of work even this year. Those of you who are in the marketplace, how, whether you or people that you work with, how many of you have experienced layoffs, right? Or poor management of a team or economic downturns, right? Or unrealistic workloads that are heaped upon you but are expected of you. 
undesired or unrealistic overtime that you're asked to work or demanded to work? How many of you just experienced the monotony and boringness of work, right? How many of you uh, have experienced other people getting credit for things you've done, right? And injustice in work. There's all sorts of ways that we experience a futility or brokenness in our paid work. But think about unpaid work because a lot of us in the room maybe we don't have a paid work where somebody's giving us a wage but just the normal day-to-day work that we do think of how futile and cursed it feels oftentimes how quickly does housekeeping get undone right you make the bed you clean things up you put things where they go and like a whirlwind people come in and I am guilty of this and it's just chaos in the house right or our work of exercise, trying to take care of our bodies, and we try to eat right and exercise right, and it yields no visible effect, right? Or house projects that we're trying to do that take too long or become too expensive, right? Or if we're a student, nobody's paying us for that, but our studies, our our hard work with writing something or studying for a test that doesn't pay off with a good grade, if anything, sometimes we still do poorly, on it, right? There's a futility to work, a cursedness to work, that, that it does not go as we desire. There's not just a goodness to work, there's a cursedness to it. Second thing you can see in what he says to Adam is that our very world is cursed, right? What does he say most explicitly is cursed in this text? It's in verse 17. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, So he's most immediately talking about the ground itself and where those plants would grow from. But by extension, and we see the biblical writers pick this up as time rolls on, he's saying that the entirety of the earth is cursed. That the entirety even of the entire universe is cursed, right? The ground is cursed because of you, Adam. Adam was the head of the human race, the pinnacle of creation. He was entrusted with oversight of the world right? And he misused it. And as a result, it's not just Eden that gets cursed, it's the entirety of the world gets cursed. From then, thenceforth, the entirety of the world is cursed. And we see this, don't we? There was tornadoes yesterday going through Tennessee, destroying houses, killing people, right? There's earthquakes that rumble, there's fires that rage, There's tsunamis that crush shorelines. There's lightning that strikes, right? There's droughts that just ravage entire parts of the world. At a more personal level, our pets die, right? Like the entirety of the world is cursed. There's a cursedness to our world. We sometimes sing here uh, this song uh, called, Is He Worthy? And it's like you sing a question and then an answer. And when we sing that, I almost start crying every time we sing, do you feel creation groaning? And then our response when we sing is, we do. Like our world is broken, broken, broken. And it can feel random, but it is painful and hard. Our very world, the ground itself is cursed. And we are part of that world, right? The last thing I think that we can see as far as the curse is found is that our very bodies are affected by the curse. The human body is affected by the curse, right? The most haunting words, I think almost in the entirety of Scripture, are in verse 19 
I think. When, when you contemplate what is being said, God starts that verse off by saying, by the sweat of your, bre- of your face you shall eat bread. Then he says, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. And then he says poetically but powerfully, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. To dust you shall return. Like to dust I shall return, right? This is not just stated of Adam, it is stated of all humanity. We uh, bear the image of Adam, right? Satan was told this horrible thing that he would eat dust. Adam is told he will become dust. I don't know if you have ever taken much time to contemplate that, to even face squarely up to your mortality. But God could equally say this to you and to me, that you are dust and to dust you shall return. God had made Adam from the ground back in chapter 2 and he's told that he's going to return now to the ground. And we know from the rest of Genesis it took 930 years. That's a long lifespan. Uh, 930 years till he breathed his last and started returning to dust and death. But that day was coming as soon as God said it, and as soon as he ate of that fruit, right? We have to face our mortality as human beings. Like, we can live in denial of it. You can try to pretend like that day is not coming for you, or that it's 930 years out for you or something, and you don't need to worry about it, but that is a lie from the enemy. Like, every person in this room is going to return to dust. And I don't say that just to scare you or haunt you, but because God wanted the first humans to hear it and he wants us to hear it, that we are all, our bodies are decaying. We all are mortal. Our bodies will return to dust. Our loved ones' bodies will return to dust. Think a hundred years from now, if the Lord stays in heaven, what will be reality for these bodies? Where will they be? Returning to dust, right? And this is not to be viewed by God here as some relief, some release, like, oh, now I can die, right? Because we know from the scriptures that death, when it comes for us, is not just the end of human experience, right? But it's a door, it's a portal to judgment, right? In the book of Hebrews, it says that it's appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. And so as our bodies begin to decay into dust, we are standing before our creator. And that should sober us. It should should make us seek to be ready for that day. So we live in a cursed world, right? Every aspect of our life is affected by it. And I, I want that to sit upon you. Think of the brokenness of this world, right? the childbearing, that relationships, that our very desires within us, that, that our work, that the very physical world we live in and our bodies themselves are all experiencing the judgment of the curse. God, help us. Like, what are we to do? Like, where, where do we turn? What hope do we have? Right? Thankfully, the God who said this thing to the woman and to the man had also said what he said to the serpent. Right? He had said that there's going to be someone, an offspring of Eve, that's going to come. And we find out as time goes on that he was going to come to lift this curse and even to reverse it, 
right? To push it back, to overturn it, right? And so I want to take the last few minutes talking to you about how far Christ went to lift this curse from us, the extent that he went, because he went to far lengths to lift this curse from us. And I want to point out three quick things, ways that he, but important, eternally significant things that he did to lift this curse from us. Okay, the, the first thing that Jesus did to lift this curse from us was that he experienced the curse in his life. He experienced the effects of the cursedness of this world in his life here on earth. He was God the Son, is God the Son. He had always existed, right? But when he entered into the womb of Mary, he took on a physical body once and for all. He became that seed of the woman, right? The virgin conception of him made him the seed of the woman. So he was like us, but different from us, right? He was fully human, but he retained his full divinity. And that is wonder of wonders to me that God the Son would become a human like us and enter into this cursed world, right? Jesus, just read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He experienced in this life, on this planet, the breadth and the depth of the curse, Right? He lived within a family. Contrary to what our Catholic brothers and sisters would say, he lived with sinful parents, right? Who sinned against him, with sinful siblings that he probably had to tolerate and resist temptation toward, right? He experienced tiredness, hunger, sadness, and grief, right? He stood at the bed of a young girl who had died, right? He stood at the graveside of his, one of his best friends, Lazarus. His earthly father, Joseph, probably died in his adolescence and he had to work as the eldest son to care for his mother, right? And as his life drew toward its end, he was increasingly mocked and threatened. He was betrayed, he was arrested, he was denied by those who were closest to him. He felt the experience of cursed life on this planet like you and I do. But he came to do more than that because just experiencing it wouldn't lift it, right? He was just joining us in it. But he came and experienced it so that something could happen at the cross. And the second thing that Jesus did to lift this curse from us, and this is most central, is that he bore the curse in his death. He experienced it in his life. His life was hard, 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 right? But his death was harder because there was cosmic things going on there. It was more than just friends mistreating him or people mocking him or calling out at him at the cross, making fun of him, right? Jesus had lived for three plus decades obediently to the heavenly father. Different from Adam and Eve, different from me and you. He deserved the blessing of the Heavenly Father, right? He deserved to be ushered at his death, if that was going to even come. He deserved to be ushered into heaven itself, rewarded with glory and praise, right? For his obedience. There was one way, though, that his experience of cursedness in life was different. He didn't have that cursed desire with him for sin, right? He lived perfectly. He lived obediently toward his heavenly father. But if he was going to lift the curse from us and the deepest part of the curse, which is the judgment of God, the wrath of God, if he was going to lift that from us, he couldn't just wave a magic wand. He had to bear it himself. 
He had to become a substitute for people like us, bearing the wrath of God. And that is exactly what happened at the cross. At the cross of the Son of God, Jesus, who we celebrate this time of year and every Sunday, every day, the Son of God had the sins of his people counted to him. He had those sins be counted to him. And what happened at the cross was more than just soldiers hitting him or driving nails through his wrists and ankles or a sword through his side. The cosmic thing that was happening at the cross is that God the Father was placing his wrath for sinners like us and the sins we have committed. He was placing his wrath down upon his son. The full weight of the curse that should be coming down on us for eternity was placed upon his son in that moment as he suffered and bled and died. He was doing it as a substitute for people like us. An irony of ironies, he wore a crown made of what? Of thorns, right? The very cursedness of the world was felt in his death upon his brow, but he was doing it for us. This author of life, the creator, was being put to death in our place. The creator was being crushed, but he was doing it so that the curse might be lifted from us because it was placed on him, right? He bore the curse in his death. He bore all the consequences for his people. And the third thing he did, to the final thing, to lift the curse was that he began reversing the curse in his resurrection, right? He was laid in a tomb that Friday. He was, he was uh, wrapped and laid in a tomb. He was dead, having suffered the full wrath of God. But praise God, Jesus' body did not return to dust, Right? Peter makes this point very clear when he's preaching at Pentecost. He says that Jesus' body did not see corruption, right? Every human body before and since, when death comes, it starts decaying. It starts returning to dust. We may hasten the process with cremation or things like that, but every other human body starts decaying, returning to dust. And Jesus' did for a moment, right? It did for a three-day span of time. But on the third day, God breathed life back into him that was better than the life he had breathed into Adam because he was breathing immortality into him. He was raising his body up and into a body that is indestructible, that could not be touched by the curse, that could never get sick, that could never, uh, could never suffer, could never die. He raised Jesus up as the beginning of a new creation, as the firstborn of a brand new creation that will last into eternity. And the good news for us is that as Jesus was raised and started pushing back the effects of the curse, overpowering them, even death itself, that core part of the curse, as he started pushing it back, the good news is we can be part of that. We can be part of that new creation, that uncursed, decursed, whatever you want to call it, creation. This new creation that can never be touched by the curse, we can be part of it, right? We can be joined into it. And the way we join into that new creation, what God calls forth from us is a, a simple response. As we hear this good news of Jesus, is to repent of our sins and place our trust in his son. Say, Father, I deserve that curse. Like, I, I deserve what he experienced at the cross. I deserve your judgment. But thank you for placing it upon him. Jesus, thank you for bearing it in my place. Please forgive me. 
If, if we call out to him in that manner, in that way, resting our soul on Jesus, God is glad to bring us into that new creation. God is already making us part of that new creation. We are then forgiven by God. We're reconciled to God. We're adopted by God. We are promised resurrection someday to eternal life with Jesus. God allows us, even those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, he allows us to remain in this curse-stained world, doesn't he? Like You could tell me ways you've experienced the curse even this morning, even this week. But what God assures us of in the good news of Jesus is that if we're united with his son by faith, we are destined for a curse-free world. We, we are part of it in some sense already, but we are destined for a curse-free world where there will be no serpent coming in to tempt, right? There will be no death looming over us someday. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He was contrasting Adam and Jesus, this first man and the, the second man. He said that the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, hear this, we, all, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Uh, we all have borne or maybe still bear the image of Adam as sinners, as rebels, as cursed people, as those who live under the curse. But praise God, we can be joined with this second man, this better Adam, uh, who is the head of a new creation, uh, where there is no curse of God to fear to experience any longer. There is a day coming, Christian friends, there is a day coming. It may be 930 years from now, I don't know. It may be this month, it may be next year, I don't know. But there is a day coming, that day Isaac Watts envisioned, when Jesus will return from heaven. And when that day comes and his kingdom is set up once and for all, think of what a glorious reality that will be. There will be no fear or shame before our creator ever again. There will be no strife with our fellow human beings. There will be no futility to our work, right? There will be no corruption of our hearts. There will be no decay of our bodies. Right? And there will be no end to our joy. Like, do you anticipate that? Do you look forward to that? Even in the cursedness of this world, can you look with tears in your eyes toward that glorious day and that reality that is coming? Because it is coming. And we can patiently endure life in this cursed world because that is the world to come that we will be part of. The last thing I want to say, though, is to my unbelieving friends here in the room, whether you're young or old, you have not placed your trust in Christ, you who still live under the curse of God, you know the sorrows of this life. But you can't deny that, the cursedness of this world. But you experience, you live it. But can you not anticipate, and I say this with respect, can you not anticipate that there is a life to come that could be worse? Like we, in some ways, experience the restraint of God right now, even amidst the curse. But when Christ returns, there will be no more restraint. Like if we are not united with his son, we will experience the fullness of the curse. 
The wrath of God that is worse than just your body decaying into dust. You will experience the judgment of God in hell. And death might not be a relief to you. right? It could be a portal to something worse. You cannot, as an individual, you can't escape the effects of the curse on your own. Right? You can't lift the judgment of the curse on your own. You certainly cannot reverse the power of the curse on your own. Right? But there is someone who can. There is someone who's born the curse for us. Right? The, curse, the, the cursedness, the wrath of God that we deserve. Who can lift it from us and reverse it and bring us into his new creation. And this Christmas, my hope for you, if you're an unbelieving friend here, is that more than presents and lights and candles and sweetness of experiences, that you come to know this Jesus by faith. That you know why he came. That you understand the significance of it and that you cast your soul upon him. That you place all your trust in him. If you do that, God will gladly forgive you and receive you. May you adore him as we sang. May you worship him. May you set your hope fully on him. This world is cursed. And I would ask you, if you don't turn to Christ, where else will you turn? To whom else will you return? Turn to Christ in faith today. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. May you enjoy the experience of those blessings. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand where you are. As I pray, we're going to sing a closing song. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you as men and women and boys and girls who live in this cursed world. Jesus, you know what it is like to live here, flesh and blood, to experience the pains of, to witness the pains of childbirth, to experience the pains of disagreement, of division amongst fellow humans. You know what it's like to see bodies decay, to see them laid in a tomb. You even know what it is like to experience death itself. But we are grateful that you came not just to commiserate with us and experience the curse with us, but to bear it for us and to reverse it. God, may we sing this morning. May we live our lives then the rest of this day and the rest of this week in, in humble acknowledgement of who you are and what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.